0: What did he say? There's a guy in our quartet Talks like no one I've heard yet He
1: mumbles, mumbles all the time He's got no reason and he's got no right What did
2: he say? You know when I got that What did he say? You like to go down What did he say? He said. Bring something round, we'll have a ball today.
0: You are listening to The Next Voice You Hear with Juan Yoon.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Next Voice You Hear. My name is Juan Yoon, and to the left of me is my right-hand man, Nevin Ryan. Say hello, Nevin. Hello, humans. Last November, uh, I believe it was actually the—it was the day after the Trump election— We were lucky enough to speak with incubator guru Valerie Fox. And I don't know if she likes to be called incubator guru, but that's that's what we think of her as. Among many of her uh, accolades and awards, uh, she's best known for her work as the director of the Digital Media Zone here at Ryerson University in Toronto. It's been hailed as one of the top university incubators uh, and accelerators for startups in the world. And she's now started her own consultancy called Pivotal Point, which brings the magic of her successful DMZ work to other academic institutions, corporations, regions, municipalities around the world who are really looking to create innovation hubs and startup uh, um, startup friendly districts in this digital age. Yeah. So that's basically what we're going to be talking about today in this episode
1: is entrepreneurship, incubation uh, and its effect on, on the future of advertising and the world around us. Uh, so let's just d- dig right into it, um, or dive right into it. <laughs> in, a, in your interview with her, you started off by discussing the importance of open source systems uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship. So let's see what she has to say about that. <laughs>
0: Where we're going uh, and what I've been finding out since I uh, helped create the DMZ and also now that I'm helping incubators grow all over the world is the fact that you are only as good as the people that you happen to know or you're working with at the time. What would happen if you actually were opening yourselves up to other amazing people outside of what you know, outside the barriers of of where you happen to live or where you happen to work. And what I found is that it just opens up your whole world of possibilities. There's a whole world out there of incredibly smart and brilliant people who are on the edge of innovation, on the edge to help us get through this new transition into the digital economy, into the 21st century. And it's those connections that enable us to actually make the changes that are necessary. and. Um, it, it, it's also because of the sense of purpose, because our world is in such a transition. You're calling it the Renaissance, and I, I, I love that you say that. Um, it, what's interesting is that it's the connections that are gonna enable us to help, uh, to have that help happen, but it's also our sense of purpose. What is it that we're gonna add from a personal perspective uh, that we hold uh, a value to ourselves and that we can give to others to enable that to happen? What we're able to do now, I think more than ever, is use the gifts that we were born with and hone them to give into a society, collaborate with that society, and do that much more. And I know I'm speaking in broad strokes now, but those are the premises behind an incubation-like environment, and that's what I'm trying to uh, stimulate all over the world.
2: Mm. Now, with with that frame in mind, the compare and contrast example that I'd like to, to talk about is... The example, if you can talk about it, of IBM wanting to create uh, their own zone, kind of a closed or private zone, versus the incredible project that you're working on in Johannesburg, which is an open system. And can you tell us, using those two as sort of case studies, the difference between a closed system and an open system, what it means, and why it's important to have an open system?
0: So in a way, it, it has to do with playing with the idea of innovation. IBM is very innovative in many, many ways, and um, what they're hoping to achieve with incubation uh, within IBM, and I'm seeing them in their innovation hub not only here in Canada, but also when I was in Johannesburg, is to create an environment where they're stimulating more innovation using IBM technology, uh, but also using incredibly smart people in IBM and having people come into the IBM uh, confines, or into the IBM organization. What's interesting and what I've been finding and what, uh, is that for IBM to be truly innovative, they would actually be better if they connected directly with the public, connected directly with the startups in ways that would open up how they actually do business at IBM. Um, I, I I used to work at IBM. I loved it. I loved the people that I worked with, a very, very, very smart people. But I actually find that now that I'm working through uh, and with many, many different incubators and acceleration systems, that I am able to uh, connect even more uh, in, with, with people who are doing things at an exponential rate. So you were bringing up what's going on in uh, Johannesburg and I'm working with this amazing man called uh, Professor Barry Dwalsky from Witts University and what he's done is created a hub he's calling it Chmielgong Precinct and this is where he's having multiple incubators come under the roof of this precinct which is in a place called Bromphantine in Johannesburg and it was put in there so that he could create Exponential growth of new companies um, within this area, and transform streets that were very, very dangerous to walk down into streets that are not only peaceful but are now thriving. IBM is actually there, and they are—they are what I'm hoping is going to happen is that their doors are going to be more open to the other incubators that are right down on that street, and I believe it's going to help IBM. Um, In ways that IBM will not expect too by being associated with the other incubators. This is where you're sharing knowledge. This is where it's not competing. I don't believe in competition. There is no competition in incubation. There is competition in business, absolutely. But it's a different kind of competition. It's where we're all, we're being, we're competing for the sake of creating a better world.
1: So what Valerie is saying uh, runs very parallel to our shared outlook uh, and emphasis on ecosystems and how they are necessary for businesses and brands today to survive. Uh, What I found very interesting, though, was her work with her colleague in Johannesburg where they're creating an incubator hub which they called Schmeligong Precinct. That really rolls off the tongue, actually. (laughs) Um, Essentially, they're using incubation as a means for social and economic change. And I don't believe this is uncommon today. We see a lot of positive effects like this from incubators and accelerators all around the world. It's just not just happening in South Africa. For instance, we've been seeing a lot of these large incubators in North America and Europe as kind of the new education system, mm-hmm. um, they're kind of becoming the new MBAs of our day.
2: well, in, in some some ways, you know people behave a bit like um, like bacterial colonies, meaning you know when we, we get a foothold and there's a couple of cells, you know as it mm-hmm. were, in a place that's that's very fertile, you know that has the the resources to support them and exactly. to help them grow, you know it, creative people attract more creative people. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs tra- attract other entrepreneurs. They also attract other suppliers. Um, they have sources of money. You know, so they tend to locate themselves in places that are transport hubs as well as near financial centers mm-hmm. uh, to get the investment. In other words, they need money, they need goods and services, and they need talent. And they tend to situate themselves in these kinds of places. And when they do uh, and create a bit of a buzz, it's a magnet. For more resources, more talent, more people, more suppliers, more customers. Yeah. And then this energy kind of, you know, accelerates, this momentum starts to happen. And in the course of it, you can totally transform a neighborhood or even a whole section of a city mm-hmm. as, a, as a result of that. It's generally speaking, very, very positive energy and, and it's a good infusion of ideas and, and talent and resources into a neighborhood. I'm not surprised this happened. It took courage for them, however, to pick that neighborhood in Johannesburg. It was an incredibly dangerous neighborhood mm. and it t- took some vision and some courage for them to imagine not only physically what would happen there but socially and commercially what would happen there and then as a result what it would do to the neighborhood and to the residents and quality of life on the streets and it just completely changed everything yeah. for the better.
1: And for to kind of re- reiterate Valerie's point in, in the interview before there. Um, it's all about the network too. Mm-hmm. Why these big incubators? Why they're so successful is because they have hundreds of, of, of founders that are kind of willing to go to bat for these companies or these startup companies that are in their incubators, right? And they're willing to leverage their connections for the betterment of of these companies. Mm-hmm. It's it's quite it's quite interesting in that respect.
2: I think uh, similarly with all creative industries, you, you find sometimes that. Advertising agencies and design firms tend to cluster in certain areas. They tend to cluster in areas that are fairly close to where creative people, creative class people, want to live and and hang out, mm-hmm. you know, and work, um, as well as, you know, n- therefore near a, f- a decent food and beverage scene and, again, near certain transportation hubs because those kinds of people tend to travel mm-hmm. a lot. They take trains, planes, and automobiles, and they're more mobile, etc. cetera. Um, so... Yeah, really this ecosystem way of looking at the world. Uh, helps us to understand, A, where should there be a creative or innovation hub? And they're very similar. Creative hubs like creative agency and architectural firms and design firm hubs and districts mm-hmm. uh, and incubation hubs have certain characteristics in common. Obviously, an incubation hub or or center is more specific and it's more planned out, you know. And what I find interesting about these examples is you need two things, two general qualities For these to work uh, in terms of changing the dynamic of a region or a neighborhood, one is um, you need a high concentration of talent and investment in a single place, like an epicenter, with a high concentration of that energy uh, to create this sense of specialness, to create that sort of magnetism. Then the other thing you need to build in is what I would call porous boundaries, permeable boundaries instead of a citadel. Like, you could attract a lot of companies and create an innovation hub in a building, but if you seal it off... Yeah, if you have a big wall. Exactly. You know, where there's not a lot of contact with the outside world, you're not doing a lot of collaboration and open collaboration, not just within, but extending it out beyond the boundaries of those walls into the neighborhood, into the city, into the region, etc., a, a non-porous, a solid, you know, boundary will do interesting things inside that building if you have enough people, talent, and resources. But it, it still limits the growing power and you know, the magnetism of that space. And what she did there, or what Cambridge did in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the Cambridge Innovation uh, Center there, uh, which is quite world-renowned, right down the street from MIT. And across the street from the, you know, Boston headquarters of, of Google and Microsoft has a big office there. Harvard is down the street, University of Massachusetts, et cetera. So you have lots of talent, lots of money, and you have a city that has made it, you know, through zoning and tax laws, et cetera, has made it very attractive for these companies and these little startups to work side by side and have decent yeah. rent you know, have access to to resources. Boston, you know, right across um, the river from Cambridge, has the waterfront section, which in and of itself is its own innovation hub. Even the state of Massachusetts has been participating in making sure that Massachusetts and particularly Boston-Cambridge is conducive to startups and entrepreneurs and, and innovators of all kinds coming in. This then attracts people like us who work in branding, advertising, marketing, you know, et cetera, because those companies sooner or later need those services and that's not what they do yeah. for a living.
1: And we'll, we'll talk about that. When branding and marketing, when does it really come in to startups? We'll talk about that a little bit later in this episode. So it's, it's clear that entrepreneurs really need to adopt this open source model. We know that. Uh, but I guess the next question would be how do privately owned companies with confidentiality requirements and legacy systems in place um, how they transform into these open source systems how they allow them into their companies so let's see what Valerie Fox uh, had to say about that
2: can they create a more open system is it even possible.
0: Well, it's, that's a huge question. I think it's possible. It just means that they have to change their mindset a bit. And also, what, at the end of the day, what are they trying to do? If it, if it's, If you're looking at a company strictly from an economic perspective, they're going to have a lot of trouble with that because I think that trade secrets and all that kind of stuff helps them be more competitive on an economic scale. But if we look at things from an economic and social scale, and uh, and if you look at social currency as being worth as much as economic currency, I actually think that... um, They could do that much more and that openness would tend to serve them better in the long run. I think it's, I think looking at things economically is a very short-term way of looking at things. And I think in the new Renaissance economy that you're speaking of, we actually have to look at the long run. What's best for humanity? What's best from us, for us from a social perspective? It doesn't mean frivolous and it doesn't mean, oh, you know, CSRs. Not that. It really is about how are we working together as a society to become better and creating a great life for ourselves economically.
2: Mm -hmm. What do you think about uh, the Indiegogo and Kickstarter, you know, crowdfunding phenomenon? Is that something that you encourage or what is your point of view on that in the work that you do?
0: I think it's beautiful. Um, it's. Uh, I, I think it's got a ways to go. It's still in its infancy on how uh, crowdfunding, crowdsourcing is working. I think we have. We, we have to systemize this a little bit more. I'd like to see uh, because I don't think people are taking advantage of it a, as much as they possibly could. I, we um, I had a, a conversation just earlier about wealth and about investing in uh, your in your community and inv- investing in your. Culture. I think that we should be using our money differently. So money is not a, the end; it's a means to an end. And if your means to an end is to create a better humanity and better social structures, then investing becomes part of that. So it should be the mindset of investing should be as much as how you're making your money. Investing is investing in the culture and, and the type of community that you want to live in to enable you to have a better life, but also to enable others to. And I believe that crowdfunding helps that. But I, like I said, I think we're only in our infancy right now.
2: Speaking of investing, and because you witness, you get involved, and you you encourage and support innovation zones, small to large, all over the world, so you have a real bird's eye view. There's been a lot of talk lately of you know boomers and the, uh, the wealth that they're going to be transferring, wealth transfer to younger generations, et cetera. Is there a huge untapped opportunity when it comes to boomers and their wealth in terms of creating funnels, you know, uh, funding, you know, or investment funnels into these various zones? Are, are, are we, should we connect some dots here to, to drive our economy?
0: Yes, and I think absolutely because I'm also finding people of of my generation, boomers that they have accumulated some wealth and the interesting thing is that they don't know what to do with it it's never been part of the mindset to invest back into society or their community they know they want to help their children and they do could there be tax breaks if they were able to do that but it's not even just putting the money in, it's actually getting involved and if you meet, uh, when I'm meeting people within a five year range of my age right now They actually they want. They want to matter. They want to give back. They want to. You know what? It's, a, it's. You could call it giving back, but it really is. They just want to matter. They're still living. They're still vibrant. There are things that they can do that that do matter. Their Their knowledge matters, and they could be uh, enabling our young people to help in this transition into the new world. So it actually also gives a sense of purpose. So yes, economically, but also their time, their knowledge, their experience is so valuable. Yes, for sure, have a vacation and that kind of stuff. But there's lots also time to get more involved. And I, I, I think that that's very important for people my age and older.
2: Um, so the two things that I pull out from what uh, Valerie was saying about the notion of open system or an open approach when you're a private sector company with confidentiality requirements and, and trade secrets, is you have to figure out what are pure commercial interests where you have to hold on to those secrets, as it were, and what are areas where you may have some of the like community or social interests that have a long-term effect on your, mm-hmm. your brand or on your license to operate, on, on how attractive you are as a place to work for talented employees. Those things are very much influenced or affected by the degree to which you you collaborate and you share and you're open and you're involved Mm -hmm. with different kinds of companies. Um, It it says something about your values, but it also says something about how fun or interesting it is to work there at your company. So I I think what she's saying is figure out where you can share because it relates to uh, your social and maybe non-commercial or non purely commercial interests. And also take the long view the short-term quarterly profit, make a killing, I need to, you know, commercially yeah, you be successful. Yeah, you check some boxes, obviously. You know, those things, of course, you're going to, have to be quite confidential about a lot of the information here. You're not going to share quite so openly. Uh, but there are other things where there's every reason to share. There's relatively little risk. So I think what she's saying is be intelligent about it and have a mindset that mm-hmm. where you're willing to look for things that you can – you know, be open about or create an open, you know, system or open approach, yeah. you know, about. And I think really what she's saying is, and regardless, never forget that your company is always part of a larger ecosystem, you know, and you can, you can either be a, a little cul-de-sac in it, or you can be a big intersection point in that ecosystem. Which would you rather be? And to have a thoughtful answer to that, that question and an evolving answer. To that question, mm-hmm. right, as opposed to the knee-jerk 20th-century way of running a company, which is to be to have uh, solid walls, so to speak, around everything, and never to share and to see everyone as competition. That black and white way of of seeing business and seeing it's the world is detrimental, and it's very out of date. And I, I think that's really the point that she's delivering. As an innovation expert,
1: now switching gears here to her, the next question we asked her, which was about crowdfunding. Um, I agree with her—the fact that it's still in its infancy. Uh, however, we are seeing its development from this kind of new age, innovative way of funding uh, into something that is widely accepted and adopted by large corporations and even advertising agencies in, in their marketing budgets. I even read recently uh, about large media outlets adopting it into programming. So like Shark Tank, do you know Shark, Ta- Shark Tank? Mm-hmm. I would like to describe it as like disgustingly rich people taking <laughs> taking advantage of... And belittling inventive poor people <laughs> in some way. I think if, you, if, if you're if you on TV and you press the info button, it would be like Kevin O'Leary grows his personal brand by being a dick <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> Anyways, uh, moving on. Uh, so what they were saying is imagine if you're watching the show— and you could invest with the sharks mm. um, on a certain product, mm-hmm. or even use um, the crowdfunding as like a litmus, litmus test, or the crowd voting, mm-hmm. I should say, mm-hmm. as a litmus test to inform the sharks on the actual potential market that they're they're going to be diving into. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's move on to ideas here. Uh, you asked her uh, during the interview about protecting and possessing ideas. Let's hear what she has to say.
2: The sense of ownership is changing. Do you find that's the case with uh, younger generations?
0: Uh, yes, and I would say it's fairly recent. It's only been the last, say, three or four years where people are getting a lot more comfortable with sharing because the, the premise is that you're only as good as what you execute. Ideas are ideas are ideas. And how you execute, and if you can execute better and you can connect to your customers, you're able to make that much more impact. Mm -hmm. And that actually is is super important for your company. So, yeah, it's not the idea itself. Everyone's had your idea. Honestly, worldwide, every idea I hear, even the most incredible ideas, I'm hearing somewhere else. But it's how how you implement it.
2: It's how you execute it. It's interesting because I think we're going through that transition as well in terms of concepts of ownership. Like if you watch The Social Network about Mark Zuckerberg and the creation of Facebook, you know, he was engaged in a, in a protracted legal battle with the Winklevoss twins who claimed that it was their idea and they should, and so this, you know, um, a debate or, or I should say uh, competition of ownership uh, was, was a very big factor, you know, in that. I find the ecosystem model very interesting because people are not uh, quite as fixed in their notions of, of ownership. Who came up with it? Whose idea is it, who makes the money off of it, and do you find it's because people are more used to the fact that there are many, many different ideas, as you said before, and it's how you execute it that matters?
0: Oh, 100%. You're just reminding me, um, if I'm going way back, about six, seven years ago, that we had a company that was basically Instagram before Instagram, and and it was called Burston. And I love the guys who came up with the idea, but it was how it was executed, and they couldn't get it out the door fast enough. And I'm sure there are a thousand other reasons, but Instagram like, just took off like crazy. And we went, oh my God, but we had that right here. But that's what I mean about having ideas and how, and how, how you get them out to market. It really actually always comes down to your market. Right? And if
2: we were to break that down, the notion of executing a good idea really well, is it about uh, user experience? Is it about branding and marketing? Is it? what are the areas where um, entrepreneurs need the most help? They may have a great concept, the next Instagram or the next Facebook, but where is it that they need the most help in terms of execution?
0: On a, on a B2C, the first word that came into my mind was traction, you need traction you need a lot of people, millions and millions of people using it and it's it can be chicken and egg sometimes on how, how you're going to be creating uh, the crowds that are going to be using your technology and how they're using it and that kind of stuff. So what is it that you need to stimulate many, 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 many people using your stuff and, and then having it iterate super quickly. B2C is more difficult that way. So that's why we're seeing more <laughs> businesses, I think, looking at B2B as, as an easier way to get to market. But now B2B, B2C now is so, it, it so relies on so many people at once. It's difficult to do. And uh, that, I, you know, but if you look at Instagram, that's, that's why it works so well. They were able to get so many people to embrace it and use it for all kinds of crazy stuff.
1: So what you said uh, at the start um, of that little clip there was very interesting. Now, idea is the easiest part. It's how you execute it is the most important. Mm -hmm. Now, in advertising, I've heard many times uh, that ideas are the lifeblood of the agency. Um, We are in the business of ideas. This isn't making me second-guess it now, though.
2: (laughs) Well, the word idea is a very general word. And I think you know, their ideas, particularly when it comes to things like crowdsourcing of ideas or you're in an ideation or a brainstorming session, you'll, what you'll get is the notion of an idea, the kernel of an idea, the beginnings or the glimmers of an idea. Mm-hmm. We should probably come up with a name for that and not call it idea. Um, if you're going to use the advertising agency's classic definition of an idea or big idea, capital I, is a concept that has been uh, that's based on really good insight developed into a true conceptual platform uh, with some indications of how it would be executed, a fully realized, thought-through idea with some notion of execution. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, if that's your definition of idea, then all these other things that we're calling uh, ideas, Mm -hmm. you know, that are generated through are, are just the kernels or the inklings or the beginnings of something that will eventually become an idea. So I think we, our, our language sometimes gets so general that we think we're talking about the same thing when we're using that word in different contexts, and we're actually not at all talking about the same thing. So I, I don't know if that clears it up for you, but... Um, it clears it up a little bit. It's an execution
1: of a kernel to make it an idea, I think, what is important
2: to... Or the right, what I would say is there are stages in the, evolu- in the development of, of the thing, idea. right? It's very similar to, you know, there's... there's We all began as, a, what do they call it, a zygote, you know? Where yeah. we began as, you know, when our mom and dad conceived us, right? So mm-hmm. We were a single cell. Right so there were there, first of all there was the glimmer in our parents eye as they say you know and then there was the single cell at that, at that moment yeah. and it oh, it's that's life now. that's how life <laughs> oh, happens come on. and then it turns into an embryo which becomes a fetus and then it 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 comes to life as it were it draws first breath and is out in the world as something separate from its mother
1: on your first tv spot
2: right and etc and then eventually stands on its own two feet literally and figuratively and eventually leaves the house, and then it is has a complete separate life, identity, mm-hmm. etc. If you think of, of life, the you know the process of life, in that way, it's not that different from the process of an idea. Mm-hmm. So I just want to be careful with people that um, you know when when you have the notion or the inkling of an idea at the very very beginning, it's a seed. You know, it's a cell. It's a, it's, it's even before the cell. It's an, it's a notion. Um, Then you develop into an, an idea. And then with a capital I capital I like fully realized concept platform. It's thought through it, okay, you've that's done a, that's some a homework. Clear distinction. You've articulated it, you know, et cetera. And then next you execute on it. In other words, you deliver it, see how it works when you launch that campaign, when you put that product into stores, when you open up that shop, et cetera, right? And then the thing truly has a life of its own and that's when it truly differentiates or not. Okay. right so it ultimately has to go through all those stages you know to get there but that too could be called an idea that's an idea a living idea an activated idea in the marketplace right so our language is kind of vague about this stuff so I feel like we need three different terms for those three broad <laughs> stages if you know
1: what I mean yeah but you still once it is that idea with a capital I it still needs to be put in the right channels it needs to be produced well and has the right messaging so so Yes, you can still have the idea is, is a big part of it. And we I, I still believe we are in the business of idea and it's mm-hmm. the lifeblood of our industry. But yes, to kind of add on to that, you do need good execution to reiterate, I guess, what Valerie was saying. So now Valerie also mentioned traction as the thing entrepreneurs now need the most when it comes to creating a startup that's a B2C service mm-hmm. or business. When I heard that, my mind immediately went to branding and advertising. Mm -hmm. But like, when should startups start thinking about that?
2: Uh, They should start thinking about it at the very earliest stages. That doesn't mean they should determine (laughs) what their name and their logo and their identity system and color palette and web platforms and sales. They don't have to think about all of it from the get-go. They don't have to develop all of it from the get-go. But they should start thinking about it as early as possible. Positioning? Uh, positioning, you know, naming, key message, you know, yeah. all of those things are important, even in the very early stages where you're doing pitches to angel investors or pitches to stage one investors. They want to know, what is this? Exactly. What do you call it? Uh, how's it going to feel? There what needs are to p- be emotion behind it. There needs to be emotion and there needs to be a shape to it. Like Mm -hmm, uh, they mm -hmm. need to your investors and your stakeholders and your potential partners and and first employees need to have a fairly clear understanding of what is this going to represent in the marketplace? What is this? What is the concept of this? Yeah, because they're representing
1: the consumers and they're putting their consumer hat on. Exactly.
2: You know, like uh, so you can't just talk about the product. It can't just be a product. Let's say you've invented something. Mm-hmm. You've invented a a gadget that connects all of your devices, uh, and through voice activation, you control everything in yeah. your life. Right? People are working on things like that. And let's say you've built one that's better than anyone else's. It's amazing, but the but that doesn't mean that. Um, well, your investors are going to want to know, that's amazing, but w- what are you going to present this as? Mm-hmm. What, is, what is the benefit or the positioning or the story? And therefore, what's the name and what is the feel of this thing as well, right? Yeah. Is it going to, this, uh, going to be a very techno-driven product or is it, is it, going, is it, going, is it going to feel like the Spike Jonze movie Her and mm-hmm. the Scarlett Johansson mm-hmm. kind of, you know, um, software voice you know yeah. that he falls in love with, or is it going to be you know a, a more hardware-driven, you know like, gadgetry kind of you guy, know, yeah. thing? Or so it's not just what does the product look like, but what what does it mean in people's lives? What are you really saying to them about why they should, well, like how buy do you make them or why they should care? Yeah, right? and
1: how do you get them to make that emotional purchase?
2: Yeah,
1: right, and then post-rationalize it after.
2: Exactly. (laughs) And if nothing else, a lot of startups and entrepreneurs have a very hard time explaining the value and the purpose or the meaning of the idea, the business idea that they have. And they go on and on and on. A lot of them, especially from their tech world, uh, and they'll use jargon that people don't understand, that investors sure don't understand in a lot of cases. um, It gets very technical and people get lost. And, you know, we have to remember, you know, that we know as people that consumers uh, will generally buy something if they intuitively understand the meaning of it. Mm -hmm. They get tired of the fancy gadget or the latest shiny object very fast. That lasts, you know, that's like rubbing alcohol on the skin. It evaporates in seconds. Mm-hmm. You feel something, but it evaporates very, very quickly. To stay with it, to buy the next iPhone, to buy the next MacBook, to keep going to that store, etc. You, you have to have installed yourself Injected. In, in a meaningful place in people's lives. I'm going to say that again. You have to install yourself into a meaningful place in people's lives. That takes some doing to figure that out. And the yeah. name, the identity, the branding, the messaging, the tagline, all that stuff are the beginnings of that. They, they start to tell that story. Mm. So earlier than later, figure that out and, and invest properly. In, in doing it and doing it well, doing it in a thoughtful way. Yeah. Uh, so that you don't do it over and over again and you don't confuse your various audiences. Yeah, by rebranding like, like 15 times. Okay, yeah. like you oh, looked, looked like that in? before, yeah. but now you feel like this and now you don't <laughs> want to do that. Okay, and so that
1: about wraps it up for today. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for joining and lending your ears. I am Nevin Ryan. I'm Wan Yu. And the next episode, we will be speaking with cinematographer Ray Lavers. So keep your ears open, and uh,
2: we'll be talking to you soon.
0: You've been listening to The Next Voice You Hear
2: with Juan Yoon.